and welcome to episode 26 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Laurel Chor, a photographer and all-around journalist based in Hong Kong. Among her many credits, Laurel was a producer for the Vice News television show on HBO before striking out on her own as a freelancer, just in time for last year's protests in Hong Kong to really kick off. Journalism is something like her third career direction, and she tried some interesting things before that that didn't quite stick. If you ever wondered what it's like to follow around a group of gorillas in the jungle for months in the style of Jane Goodall, you'll enjoy this interview. We spoke a few weeks ago while she was in France, more or less trapped because of the quarantine lockdowns coming into effect. You'll hear a lot of birds chirping and other nature sounds in the background. Rather than an annoyance, maybe look at it as a taste of the outdoors at a time when we're mostly stuck inside. She recently returned to Hong Kong, it looks like just in time for more protests to kick off. That's it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Laurel Chor in Hong Kong. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you could set the scene a little bit for me and our listeners, what time it is, where you are geographically, and also what kind of physical space you're in, and a little bit about what the past work week has been like for you. Well, it's currently quarter past three. I am in the north of France in a village you've never heard of, about 20 minutes outside of Lille and not far from the Belgian border. I'm in France because my boyfriend lives here and I was traveling around Europe for work and I was just going to stop by and visit. And because of the pandemic, a quick visit has turned into an indefinite stay. So (laughs) I have the windows open, I'm in his room, I can hear the birds chirping. I really can't complain. I think we're really lucky that we're in the countryside during all this. France is under lockdown, a really strict lockdown. To go outside, you need to have this official form where you fill in why you're out, what time you left, where you live. And if your justification to be outside isn't good enough, or if you don't have a form, or if you're breaking the rules, then you have to pay a 135 euro fine. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty strict. But I'm really lucky, you know, we're in the countryside. We have a big garden. He lives in his family home, and his mom is an amazing cook. So I really can't complain. And I am sleeping lots, getting a lot of rest. And this is the longest I've been in one place in probably a few years. So, I mean, this past week, have you been able to do work just remotely? Are you still going out a little bit or how how does that work? On Monday, I had my first real assignment and I went out and took photos not too far. But that was just sort of photos to illustrate the economic downturn in France. It wasn't anything high risk or anything relatively high risk. So I haven't been able to really work much as a freelancer especially as a photographer or a filmmaker, which has been frustrating just because from a journalist perspective, I feel guilty not doing more to cover the situation, but I I am struggling to figure out what I can do, how I can do it safely without putting the people I'm living with at risk. That adds to the conversation beyond just pictures of empty streets. And it's tough. And I think it's also hard to motivate myself a little bit. I think most people I've spoken to are struggling a little bit to motivate themselves no matter what they do. And I think that's kind of the boat I'm in right now. But that said, I I don't really have 
much to complain about. But I do I do feel guilty about not doing more. And that's something I'm trying to work on right now. So I take kind of a holistic approach to how you got to where you are today. And I start way, way back at the beginning. So I want to know, where were you born? Give me a little bit about what growing up was like and what school was like. And if you started to take an interest in journalism back then. Sure. I was born in Canada to immigrants from Hong Kong. And when I was five years old, my parents took me and my two siblings back to Hong Kong. So I grew up in Hong Kong. There was a two-year stint in Taiwan as well. And I went to international schools that were either French international schools or American international schools. I had a pretty international upbringing, and I'm really lucky and grateful for that. And I speak French, which is really helpful, and a bit of Mandarin from having spent time in Taiwan and from having studied it in school. So after high school, I studied in the U.S. I went to Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and there I majored in international health and got a minor in international development. So I actually never really thought about going to journalism. It was just not something I ever really thought was an option. I think growing up, I wasn't really exposed to a whole variety of careers. My mom mostly stayed at home since having the three kids. And my dad is a businessman who just works. And it was always just this mysterious thing to me. He does business. So I, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I mean, and especially, you know, Chinese kid, Chinese parents, like you think you're going to be a businessman, a lawyer, a doctor or an engineer. I don't think I really knew what I could do and what that looked like. So I, hmm. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to do something that I thought would be impactful and I wanted to be a doctor, and after I graduated from secondary school, I was really lucky, and I was able to travel and backpack around South America and Africa, and I sort of realized through those experiences that being a doctor wasn't actually the most impactful thing I could do, even in the sphere of public health. Of course, doctors are really important, and they save lives, but in terms of reaching as many people as possible, I realized that development and public health could potentially have a bigger, broader impact. So I majored in international health, which I really loved. And it's kind of a unique major. We learned about development, economics, public health, a lot of science as well. And it gave me a good sense of how the world works. For a teenager who grew up in Hong Kong, I think it gave me exposure to the broader world and a better sense of how it worked, which is what I was looking for. And as with any career, whenever you meet someone who has always known what they've wanted to do and that's all they've ever pursued, I'm always a little jealous because to have that clarity is a blessing. It's not the only way to do it. It's not necessarily the best way to do it, but I always thought that it was really lucky for them to have always known what to do. But for me, I also really always wanted to work with animals and with something to do with the environment and my senior year of college, I think I had grown pretty disillusioned with the public health fields. I had studied abroad in Ghana, and while I was there, I chose to do my thesis on something pretty depressing, I guess. It was about abortion in rural Ghana and access to abortion and knowledge about attitudes towards abortion. What I learned was pretty hard for me. It was a difficult experience hearing about the things that women and girls had to go through 
to get abortions, the stigma they faced, the poor access to health, and then also realizing that the people I was working with, I was an intern with the Ghana Health Service, and this is a government agency, and realizing that their attitudes towards abortion were pretty judgmental and how that impacted everything. So in the end, it's just a very disillusioning experience for me. And I think I just kind of didn't want to do that, at least not straight away anymore. And I decided to pursue my lifelong dream of working with animals. So I, my last semester of college, I took like extra classes, which is not what you're supposed to do your senior year of college. (laughs) And I took a couple classes, one on animal behavior and one about conservation. And then after graduation, I applied to every single entry-level primatology-related position I could find because I basically wanted to become Jane Goodall. (laughs) And only one really got back to me and accepted me. And luckily, it was actually because of my public health background, because they wanted to do public health interventions for both the gorillas that they're working with in the wild and the local community. So that summer I worked at National Geographic as a fact checker. And then after that, I went to the Central African Republic to work as a research assistant for like five or six months, which was a crazy experience. I was in the middle of the jungle living in this camp, did not have running water or electricity. And every day I followed a gorilla family around. which is amazing. And to this day, it's probably the most unique and crazy thing I've ever done. But I quickly learned that it was pretty boring, surprising. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a complete wild dream come true. But at the same time, I think because I wasn't necessarily doing my own science or doing research for a project that had clear goals. And so I think without this kind of structure and clear mission, I was really just following around these gorillas every day, which gets pretty boring. You know, you're just staring at gorillas for like six hours a day for a long time. And so what, yeah. what, what was the goal? What was the, the organization? What, what were they setting out to do? So this was in a national park and it was a project run by the World Wildlife Fund. And it was a primate habituation program. So they followed these different gorilla family groups around and they also followed these other types of monkeys around. And the goal of the habituation program is to follow them until they're used to human presence. And the point of that is that you can bring tourists to go see them as you do very popularly in Rwanda, for example. And you can also have scientists observe them because truly, truly, truly wild gorillas will run at the sound of humans. So you couldn't even study them. So that's the point of this habituation program. But the family group that I worked with the most at this point was actually already fully habituated. So it's actually not as exciting because they actually don't care about your presence. So on one hand, you can observe them pretty close and they act totally naturally with you around because they're used to you. But on the other hand, for example, if you follow gorillas that aren't fully habituated, there's a bit more excitement because you kind of have to find them and then they like charge at you or scream or run away and they have to keep doing that. So I basically just followed this gorilla family around to maintain the habituation program. And also that's how they keep track of the gorillas and where they are. They actually just have people physically there following them every single day from the moment they wake up till they go to bed because there's not GPS trackers on them or anything. So, yeah. And they're also collecting behavioral data, but it was just sort of long-term data that they thought they should 
collect with no clear aim. So I knew at the time that it probably wouldn't amount to anything, and I'm pretty sure it never has. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, wow, that's kind of funny on some level. It's like aversion therapy for people with phobias, but you are the phobia, the aversion. That yeah, totally. I never thought of it that way. It's totally traumatic for the animals, but they get used to them. So this family that I followed around the most by this point, they've probably been followed around for, like, 15 years now they've had humans (laughs) following them almost every single day for the last 15 years which is really important for science for people to be able to observe them and collect samples from them fecal samples etc and also for tourism so it was an incredible experience but that experience also made me realize pretty quickly that hey maybe zoology is not what i want to do either but the one common thread throughout all this that i realized was from a young age, from when I was a young teen, I loved taking photos. And that's what I did throughout everything I did. I took photos, including when I was in the CAR. And I wrote blog posts and I made videos. And over time, I sort of realized that it, with all these topics that I'm really passionate about, whether it's public health or wildlife conservation, my favorite thing to do was to actually tell people about it, not necessarily to do it myself. And I think that mm-hmm. sort of when I got more clarity about what I want to be is actually to be a storyteller. And I don't think I really was able to articulate it that way in my head at the time, but I figured this is what I enjoy the most, taking photos and writing a little bit. So why don't I actually give it a shot? So after I was evacuated back home, the civil war broke out while we were there oh. and yeah wow. and the rebels were coming close to the camp or heading that direction so we were evacuated all of a sudden and i've never been back i was home all of a sudden mm-hmm. and still kind of reeling from what happened and feeling really guilty about just leaving everything behind and not having said bye to anyone and then being a privileged foreigner whisked away as soon as there's any sign of danger while the locals get left behind in a really shitty situation yeah it was, it was crap and i felt like Being back in Hong Kong, I was maybe the only person in the whole city who had been to this place. And this was happening. This war was happening. And soon after we left, because the park wasn't really protected anymore, poachers came to near where I was working and they killed 26 elephants for their ivory. And that's when I started learning about the ivory trade. And I was like, wow, there's so many messed up things going on that I think I actually do have a duty to tell people about because at least where I'm from, there's almost no one who's been there and who has seen these things firsthand, who can tell these stories. And that's sort of, I guess, sparked something in me, realizing that the best thing I can do if I want to help these places is not necessarily to be there or like to be a research assistant or whatever, but to actually tell people about these stories and what's going on there. That's yeah. a pretty compelling reason. What was your conception of how journalism worked? The once that light bulb goes off, what next steps did you take? Honestly, I had no idea how journalism worked, really. I really didn't. I didn't know any journalists. And I think it was always this really intimidating world. But, you know, I had like a blog that obviously no one read, and but I wanted to try being a photographer, so I tried freelance photography. I was doing stuff like events and like nightclub photography, which is terrible. I don't do it. <laughs> 
just for local publications in Hong Kong? That, I mean, that was just even for like their PR agencies. Like I was just taking photos so that uh, they'd be on Facebook, people partying and having a good time. And I realized, you know, that wasn't really getting me where I wanted to be if I wanted to do like photojournalism. So I got this internship at Time Out Hong Kong. And it wasn't even a photography internship. It was a writing internship, but I figured they would let me take photos or it was just a foot in the door. And it was about a topic I really honestly don't know anything about. It was the arts, culture, and classical section of the magazine. Really don't know anything about it. (laughs) But I learned a lot. I was really lucky that I had a fantastic editor, Isabel Chung, who's still an arts editor to this day. And she was just such a great editor. And just from getting my pieces edited by her, I learned so much. And I got to take some photos. And that's where I really started writing and then I went to this journalism conference the Asian American Journalists Association conference that they have every year in Hong Kong Mm right in Asia and I saw this guy who works for this media organization speak on a panel and I'd never heard of them before but they showed a video that they did and I loved it so this media company is called Coconuts and they showed this awesome little video about a subculture in Thailand where these guys like their hobby is to be Mexican gangsters. Wait, their job or their hobby was to do their this? hobby. So Coconuts <laughs> went on stage and showed this video about the subculture in Bangkok where young Thai men, their hobby after work is to become Mexican gangsters. And like the video is called The Cholos of Bangkok. And I just thought this was awesome that there's this media company that's making these well-shot docs about these subcultures in the region. And that's not something that at the time I had ever really seen. And I fell in love with the idea. And it's just such a great video. And I think like many young journalists in their early 20s, it had been a dream of mine to work for Vice. And I remember at the time, my friend was at the conference with me, turned to me, it was like, they're like the Vice of Asia. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I went up to them after the panel and they said they're actually hiring and they asked me to do a test piece and I did this photo and text piece about a subculture I came across in Hong Kong, which was the world of competitive dodgeball, like super competitive dodgeball. (laughs) So and then they Yeah, why not? And they liked the the piece and the photos and I got the job. So I was at this online blog for about two years. And while I was there, I was writing, I was editing, I was making videos. I started hosting a little bit and taking photos, which made me happy. And I was just starting out. It was my first journalism job of any sort. And not long after I started, the 2014 Umbrella Movement protest broke out. And I was able to sort of just learn the ropes there and didn't really know what I was doing. But I knew Hong Kong and I could take photos and I could write decently and I just sort of reported what I was seeing and that's sort of how I cut my chops as a journalist covering the 2014 Umbrella Movement protests for Coconuts. And there are just two of us actually working for Coconuts in Hong Kong. And Coconuts now, I'm not sure is as popular in Hong Kong anymore, but I was really proud of what we had done because we were just sort of this goofy blog called Coconuts. And I think it did become not the main source by any means, but it became a source of news for people about these protests because everyone was so desperate for news on the ground. And I was 
at the protests almost every day covering it. What was it like covering it for them versus, say, covering it for a newspaper or something? I mean, were you guys looking to cover it in a different way or how, how exactly did you approach it? Well, I think I wasn't really part of the newsroom. So it was really more about just reporting what I saw and trying to give people a sense of what was happening, what it was like being there, as opposed to being a part of this planned strategic coverage. I think we did try to find angles that no one else did, but we were just two people and I was really the only person on the ground. We were just sort of doing the best we can. And I think what was difficult for me, you know, I was young, I was 24, didn't really know what I was doing is I didn't really have any guidance or leadership. And I just sort of had to teach myself and take cues from what other people were reporting. But we did try to always sort of do the underreported stories because that's sort of the mission of Coconut. So we did one video about how minorities played into the protests and... We did a video, actually, it wasn't really about that one. There's one about, like, protest fashion, but it was really just about what people wore to the protest. <laughs> so we did try to find, like, the goofy, not necessarily the goofy, but the underreported or lesser-known angles, but we were just doing the best we could as a very small team with few resources. And I think, for me, I'm really glad I had that experience because it taught me a lot about being a one-woman band and doing things with few resources and just getting stuff out there. And of course, with social media, all of that was possible. And I was going to say, yeah, I mean, especially early on as a journalist, if you do just one thing, you kind of can settle into that thing. But I mean, you still do photo, video, text to this day is my impression. And I mean, uh, that's what you were doing from the start at Coconuts, it sounds like. So yeah, it sounds like it turned out for the best. Yeah, Did it's a good you, point. I never really thought of that. <laughs> what happens next when you leave Coconuts? I was just sort of ready to move on. I loved my time at Coconuts, but I knew I couldn't be there forever. And just as when I was trying to look for the next step, this opportunity advice came up. And I was really, really lucky to even hear about it because it was like through a friend of a friend, basically, that I'd also met through mm-hmm. the same journalism association. So it goes to show how important it is to network and be a part of these groups if you can. I think I was just talking about Vice to another journalist friend about how I really admired what they were doing and how cool their work was to me. And she was like, oh, I actually have a friend who just started working there. And I think they're actually hiring in Hong Kong. I was really lucky. And she reached out and that person put me in touch with the recruiter who was in Hong Kong and I managed to catch him on his last day in Hong Kong. And oh, wow. we just sort of met up for a drink. And after that, I had like a few rounds of interviews and had like a written test. And then I got the job and it was a job as a producer for Vice News Tonight on HBO, which was a huge leap for me. Going from yeah, wow. online wacky blog to producing for HBO. And yeah, it was a huge opportunity for me and I was super psyched to get it. Yeah, that's amazing. I remember when that first came on air and was very, very slick production value, trying to do undercover stories and things like that and cover them in a different way. So what was it like there working as a producer and how long did you do it for? I was there for just over two years. It was really difficult for me at first because I was the only person based in Asia for the entire show. 
And the show when I joined hadn't even aired yet, so everyone was newly hired. The whole team had been built from scratch, and they were building this show from scratch. And I was super far removed from that, so I was kind of not at the top of anyone's priority list. So it was really tough for me at first because I already knew that I had a lot to learn, but not only that, I had no no guidance and no yeah. no colleagues. I was alone. I was hired in September, and the first time I ever met a colleague was in November. And then the first time I met my bosses was in December. So I was really just flailing around on my own for a while. And like you said, Vice on HBO is super high production quality. And prior to this, I had been making, shooting, editing, producing hosting videos on my own on my SLR. So it was, a, it was you know, a whole new ball game and I had to learn all of that on the job really quickly and by myself. And it was really scary, but it worked out. <laughs> and I gradually learned and I got to do a lot. And I still, by the end of it, was the only person in Asia, which had its pros and cons, but it also mostly meant that I got to do a lot. And I reported in like a dozen different countries and did some stories that I'm really proud about. And I learned a lot. So it was a great experience. So it was the type of situation where you would discuss and talk about story ideas. You would kind of, as the producer, do advanced footwork and make all the arrangements. And like the on-camera people would come in just to do that story, then leave. And you were the only one based there. How exactly did that work? Yeah, so I did a combination of both hosted and unhosted stories. So most of the stories I did were unhosted, meaning they're essentially just short documentaries. And in that case, I usually had pitched a story, sometimes it was assigned stories, and then I planned the whole thing. And because I was the only person in Asia, I mostly hired freelance crew in the region. And then I just sort of shot this thing and sent everything back to New York and wrote a script and they put it together. And then especially towards the end, I was doing more hosted stuff, which means that it was still usually my pitch most of the time. And I organized the whole thing and set up the shoot. And then a correspondent would be flown from either the U.S. or the U.K. And they would front the piece. How is that? I always wonder. I know a few different videographers and say you go work for CNN. Like if you're a producer, you're always the one behind the camera and you never are on camera talent. And I imagine at some point that must become, I don't know, maybe annoying. How do you feel about that type of setup where the on-camera person flies in and does that part where you're doing all the back work? Yeah, it's. I think every producer feels differently about it. I think for me, it was tough because I host, I do on-camera stuff. I didn't do much advice, but it was something I knew I could do and that I had aspirations to do. So it was frustrating because people were being flown in to do something that I thought I could do or that I at least wanted to do. Whereas right. for some producers, they have no desire whatsoever to be on camera. So they want someone else to do it. But on the other hand, every correspondent is different. And most correspondents, I had a lot to learn from. They were a lot of time very experienced journalists. And seeing how they thought of the story, seeing how they performed their interviews, having someone to bounce ideas off of was really valuable too. So I was really glad I had people to learn from. On the other hand, yeah, it was frustrating because especially if it's a story that you pitched and the characters that you got access to and it's a story that you're going to script, it's frustrating that 
for me personally, the thing that I love the most about being a journalist is speaking to people. And when you're a producer with someone else as a correspondent, you literally do everything except speaking to people, which is probably the best part. So that was hard for me. But you know, it was still a learning experience and I, I got to learn from some of the best in the business and, and see how they front pieces. And having been somebody who grew up probably liking the whole Vice vibe and liking their work, I mean, I'm curious how you feel about it now that you've worked there. And I have heard, quote unquote, horror stories about Vice, but I would say those are always with freelancers who are writing, you know, the piece for a couple hundred bucks, that model. It's very different from what you were doing for the Vice television show. And, you know, they'd have horror stories about how they completely sensationalized their story and they also get like no money for it so it's not great but how how do you find vice now that you know how it works on the inside yeah vice definitely has a very bad reputation i think it's funny because on one hand vice is at least was really popular and on the other hand people love shitting on it sorry i don't know if i can swear on this (laughs) Um, no yeah you can you can it's got a a blanket explicit tag that <laughs> okay. yeah. you know i'm sure all the horror stories are probably mostly true but vice is a huge organization with a lot of different departments and i never even met anyone outside of vice news tonight or vice on hbo so i can only really speak of a very small segment of vice and even when i was at vice there was this term that we use, which is old vice and new vice, and we were new vice. So we had all been hired around the same time for this show. And it was a whole new department. So I think we kind of represented this new rebirth of vice in a way. And I think people wanted to do things well. And it was HBO. So there was actually a lot of money. It was funny. Like I had a few interactions where people seemed to imply that they assumed I didn't make much money. But, like, for my age, doing journalism in Hong Kong or Asia, like, I was doing really well. They, they paid well. They didn't pay everyone well. There were definitely issues with equitable pay, which I think were well publicized. But in general, money wasn't necessarily an issue. We had big budgets to produce good television for HBO because that's what HBO wanted. There were definitely issues, but I don't think they were issues that were specific to vice culture. I think working in a big company with ambitious bosses who wanted to do a lot. But at the end of the day, I think anyone who worked at Vice News Tonight or Vice on HBO made something that they were proud of. And Vice News Tonight, in the end, for the two years they were on the air, they won more Emmys by far than any other nightly news show on U.S. television. So I think that kind of speaks for itself. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, especially that earlier in your career to do something like that is amazing. And I I was going to say it was the end of the run, and that's the reason why you left and looked for a new job. And what happened next? I left before the show ended. I just didn't really see space for me to grow anymore, especially since I couldn't see myself producing forever. Like I said, it was frustrating for me to not be able to host at all because I wanted to, and it kind of felt like these stories were taken away from me sometimes if if someone else ended up fronting a story that I pitched and worked on and scripted and everything. That's just how it works if you're a producer and you work with correspondents a lot of time. And I didn't want to produce the rest of my life, but honestly, 
if I did want to produce and if that was all I wanted to do forever, that would have been a dream job that I probably could have stayed up forever. But it wasn't. So I, I didn't see space for me to grow anymore. And then the show was actually canceled. I left like, I think nine months before the last episode. So it wasn't directly linked to that. But I just wanted to move on and do my own thing and do things other than produce, like maybe write and take more photos and host myself. So it was just time to move on. And did you go into full-time freelance from there on out? Yeah, so I became a freelancer, which was a little scary. But what I tell young people now who think about freelancing straight away is that for me personally, I was glad that I had a full-time job experience and had built up this portfolio and these connections before going freelance. I was still doing some pieces for Vice, and I was just sort of wanting to break into the photography world in the only way that I could think of or that I thought I should be doing was looking for story ideas and pitching photo and text pieces and going from one to the other, which is going pretty slowly, but it was happening. (laughs) And then about five months after I started freelancing earnestly, in June of last year, the protests broke out in Hong Kong and that changed a lot of things for me because all of a sudden I was this freelancer who was slamming around who thought they'd only needed to make it for a few months before going to grad school in October because I was planning on doing a one-year master's in biodiversity and conservation in October of last year. And then in June, the protest happened and that opened so many doors for me because I was a freelancer who spoke Cantonese living in Hong Kong during the biggest international story of 2019. So that was a big break for me. And I mean, the protests, they sort of took over my life last year. Just looking briefly at your website that, you know, you list all the publications you work for in 2019, and it's this incredible list. I mean, I've talked to some freelancers when things really hit. And from what I've heard, if it's really big news, you basically can wake up and decide which publication you want to work for on which day to do what. Was it one of those kind of situations where work just poured in and you could work for anybody? Were people reaching out to you? How did that go? Yeah, it kind of was. It was overwhelming because you go from a freelancer that everyone ignores to suddenly being someone who fields emails or DMs every day from all these organizations and publications that want to work with you or are just looking for someone to work with. And I mean, the protests themselves were overwhelming. And then to sort of juggle all those opportunities and figure out what I want to do and how to do it. So the beginning, I was just sort of taking the work that was coming my way, which was springing and and text reporting. And then more and more photo opportunities came along and and that's really what I wanted to do. So I started turning down the text opportunities to do more photography. And by the end, I was doing mostly photography and turning down other opportunities. And I also did a lot of TV, which for any journalist who finds himself in a big new situation is pretty easy and fast money. So yeah, I was juggling a lot. And at the beginning, I was taking any work I could, but by the end, I was able to do more of the work that I preferred, which is photography. But now, honestly, with the protests having died down, or at least not being by far a major international story anymore, I am sort of trying to figure out how to be a freelance journalist who's not living in these like times when opportunities are abundant because even at the time I knew it wasn't going to last forever and now I'm just sort of figuring out the next step. 
Right. And what what is it about photography that you think you prefer doing that the most? Good question. It was always my original love, if you will. And I think for me, individual photographs are the most impactful for me personally. I think the difficulty of taking an impactful photograph and the skill that goes into it and the timing is just all really fascinating and gratifying to me. Whereas writing is never something I was honestly naturally all that good at or that I enjoy that much. You know, I, I do it as a means to an end, but I don't just sit down and write for fun in ways that I think some writers do. I would never do that. And video is honestly a lot of work and it's tedious and it involves a lot of teamwork, which is great, but it's just a lot more resource intensive and, and you can't really make a very, very good video on your own. And I like rigging my own and I think with photos it's just the most creatively gratifying and also the most immediately gratifying. And for me, I could look at photos all day. And of course I'll appreciate really good writing and an amazing documentary, but it's not the medium that speaks the most immediately to me. Still, yeah, no, that's pretty cool. I mean, a great photo can be extremely impactful and just like that photo that just came out in Brazil of the million graves that had been dug for coronavirus. And it's just one photo on one front page and it just, yeah, speaks by itself. And yeah, I would say all the photos that tend to stick with me from the front pages of newspapers tend to be extremely grim. I don't know what that says about me, but I guess, yeah, it's the malnourished Indian kids. It's the, you know, that's the stuff that sticks with me. So good photojournalism tends to make me very uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that's probably journalism in general, right? But I think photojournalism probably falls victim to the whole need to show the worst parts of humanity. Do you feel the need to show that? Uh, no. I, I I mean, I think many journalists, there's always this almost perverse inclination to run towards things that other people run away from, right? But it's not... I mean, I hope that journalism in general and that myself as a practicing journalist now that we've moved on from, or at least we're trying to move on from that whole poverty porn era where you show suffering for the sake of it and people think, especially in photojournalism, that that's what makes good photojournalism. But I think we're moving away from that. I don't think personally that's at all what I want to do, but it is something that I think photojournalists especially have to be mindful of and to not fall into that trap, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. And I was curious because it sounds like you work all over the place. I think when I first emailed you, you were in New Zealand. Is that right? So this year, where have I been? So I was in Rwanda producing a piece for an NGO. And then I was in Australia hosting a piece for Vice. And then we went to New Zealand to do another piece. So in New Zealand, we were filming a piece about the one-year anniversary of the Christchurch mosque shooting and how gun reform was faring a year on. So that was the piece we were doing there. And then after that, I was in Scandinavia and Italy, and here I am in France under lockdown. Wow. So you you do do work for Vice still, and you do do hosting for them? Yeah. So part of the reason I quit was so that I could 
host more. And now that I've quit, I'm ironically hosting for Vice. So it's funny how things turn out. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome that it's come back around to that. So then to talk about a couple of stories, what is a story that got away? So a story that you wanted to do and maybe it never got past the idea stage. Maybe you couldn't convince an editor. You couldn't prove the story or get the key people to talk to you or for whatever reason, there were logistical problems, really any reason. But can you think of any stories that uh, got away from you? Yeah, so many. (laughs) I mean, I like to think that stories never really get away. It's just not the right time to do them yet. And I have like a whole series of notes about stories that I want to do down the line that I like sent feelers out that might take years to come to fruition. But for a story that really, I wouldn't say got away, that I really probably just fucked up. (laughs) It was my very, very first shoot for Vice. And it was a terrible idea. Literally my first day on the job, literally like the first date as according to my contract. I was in Vanuatu filming a story about how Google was sending the Street View camera down into a volcano, an active volcano. And it sounded (laughs) really cool, and it was really cool. But at the time, I honestly just wasn't ready to do that kind of story. Like I didn't have any guidance, and it was a cool story, and I kind of went in the way I usually do, which is really get what you can get while you're there. But it came back and I didn't have a good sense of what the story really was. Like, what's the narrative? What's the beginning, the middle, the end? And it never really came together. I I still think with what I shot that you could make a really good story. But because the show was just about to launch and no one really understood what I got, they knew that there were these really dramatic visuals of like me going down into a volcano, but they didn't really understand the point. So it was... A combination of a failure on my part to like be able to put this story together, but also I think I was kind of thrown into the deep end, like literally into like a lava pool because I was just kind of thrown in there. They just told me to go. I told them, hey, I was invited to go follow the street view camera down into a volcano. And they're like, yeah, sure. And I came back with like a very unclear story and it never aired. So we did this expensive shoot in Vanuatu and I literally went down into a volcano, but it never aired. So that's always been a source of like embarrassment for me. And I wish something came out of that, but never did. And it probably never will. Wow. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like something you don't forget. An amazing experience. But yeah, I understand how doing it and then it never getting out. There's not that kind of catharsis at the end of it. I definitely shot a couple different things that I'd never forget as a student journalist when I did some video work. And I always held on to the footage and was always like, maybe I'll do something with this, but it just never happened. Yeah, it's a good point, right? Like if you had finished it, you probably wouldn't remember it. But yeah, I think for me, that's the hard thing. I mean, I think probably the reason why I work in different mediums is because I can't pay attention to one thing for a very long time. (laughs) And if you combine that with working either as a freelancer or with little guidance or in like a very small company, then that's why I've ended up with so many unfinished projects, which is like a source of constant guilt. But I guess it's just sort of the reality of working in a creative field and in journalism. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's a good story about Vice. I mean, the opposite of the horror stories, the fact that that didn't go right and they were fine with it and it was your first thing, but they just moved on. And 
you had a good two year run there. Yeah, so I guess the lesson is maybe uh, you can start off on a really bad foot, but things still end up okay. <laughs> cool. And then I guess to talk about a story that you're proud of, if you can pick a story, tell us a little bit about what it was and just walk us through kind of start to finish how it went. One story I'm really proud of is this special episode we filmed at Vice called Ear of the Dog. And it ended up being a whole episode of the show. So it was like a 24, 25 minute doc that aired on HBO. And we followed a migrant worker couple all the way from Shenzhen to their village in Sichuan. And my colleague Karen and I worked on it. And it just ended up being a piece that I'm really proud of. It's this beautiful, heartfelt piece where we had amazing access and this family and I'll forever be indebted to them. And, and I'm so grateful to them for opening up their lives to us. And we got this really intimate look inside their lives and what it's like leaving kids behind in the hands of their elderly father who's taking care of these kids by himself. And it was from a producer's perspective, it was a huge logistical nightmare because we filmed all these different parts and everything was moving. So I think at most there were four or five teams on the ground in different places. We start off in Shenzhen with the couple and then we split up their like two-day train ride. So one team did the first part of the train ride while myself and another cameraman, we went to the kids and filmed them home alone with their grandparents. And then we met up at the train halfway and filmed that while the other team rested. And then while we did that, another team stayed with the kids and kept filming them. And then we managed to film the reunion of the parents with the kids from two angles. And we also had like, at one point we had another guy who we just went off and gave him like a rough map of train tracks and told him to go get aerials and trains. <laughs> yeah, so it was a logistical nightmare, but it worked out. And again, thanks to this family opening up their lives to us, we got this really beautiful, intimate look into what it's like being a migrant worker couple, what it's like to leave your kids behind, what it's like to be kids who only see their parents once or twice a year. And even though the piece never really got that much traction, I think it was maybe what you could say critically acclaimed. <laughs> it won an Overseas Press Club of America award, which I'm really proud of. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a piece I'm really proud of. And I think another thing that was really cool was myself and my colleague Karen. She's actually mainland Chinese. I'm from Hong Kong. And our translators and other field producers were mainland Chinese. We had one cameraman who was Chinese as well. I like to think that the reason we're able to get such intimate access is because we were an almost entirely Chinese team. Yeah, that's great. I guess I would be curious just because this migrant experience has been covered so much in terms of, I think there's even like an hour and a half long documentary about this. I don't even know if I've seen it, but like Last Train Home, it might be yeah. called. And, you know, there are a million text pieces and things like that. I mean, setting out to do it was the idea just to do the absolute best version of that possible? Or did you feel a need to somehow differentiate it? Or what do you think set this piece apart? It's probably not the way to do it, but if I know I'm going to do a piece 
and someone else has already done something similar, I actually try to avoid it so that I don't get influenced too much. So I actually have never seen the long train home or what it's called, which I need to and I should. Yeah, and I actually brought that up with my bosses at the time. I was like, look, this has been done. So what are we adding? And they said the point isn't necessarily to do something that's entirely original, but just to tell it the best we can and to bring it to our audience. And also, I think the turnaround in which we did it was probably unprecedented to be filmed out over Chinese New Year and it aired in February. They turned around in like two or three weeks, which is crazy considering it's like a 25-minute doc that aired on HBO. So I'm not sure I have a good answer to your question, but I think... We told a story that we thought was worth telling, that we knew was new to our audience, and that hadn't been told the way we tell stories, and we did it. I was going to ask, you mentioned the mainland and Hong Kong thing and the fact that this probably got you very good access or helped you tell the story in a deeper way. I was curious if China is such a huge story, but I know it's complicated, especially for Hong Kong journalists to cover China. Is the mainland something that's called to you? And how do you feel about that? Good question. I think for me as someone from Hong Kong to go into China, I have my which is literally a return home permit if you translate it literally, and I have a Hong Kong passport. So for me, I'm at increased risk compared to a totally foreign journalist. Like I'm much more likely to be detained or disappeared, and it's much more likely that the rest of the world wouldn't care if something happened to me. So there's certain things that I just can't do and that I can't risk doing. But on the other hand, of course, it's a story that's very relevant to me. And the Hong Kong story more than ever requires a lot of China reporting in a way. So I guess for me, the way the story that I feel certainly a duty to report on is the Hong Kong story. But to report in China itself or on China itself isn't something I've done as much. But, you know, I spent the second half of last year doing nothing but report on the Hong Kong protests. And that whole story is basically about the Hong Kong mainland China relationship. Sure. So next up is the lightning round. It's a series of faster paced questions. Do you feel ready? As ready as I'll ever be. So first off, what is a must read or must watch publication that you look at almost every day? I wish I had an interesting answer, but I'll go for the more unexpected one, which is I'm on Reddit every day, probably unwillingly, but my fingers end up typing it in the browser every day. So I'm on there at least once a day for sure. And it's like you do see internet trends there before it gets picked up elsewhere. That's how I justify it to myself. Yeah, that makes sense. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch? It can be whatever medium just for fun that doesn't have to do with your job. I think that's a journalist who works in different mediums. It's hard because I think anytime I listen or watch or read anything, I'm always sort of doing it from a journalist perspective and dissecting how they produced it and how they wrote it and how they reported it. Gosh, what do I do for fun? (laughs) (laughs) I'm on a streak right now of listening to autobiographical audiobooks. And I've realized that any other type of audiobook I listen to, my attention span isn't long enough for that unless it's really 
conversational and that's what works well. Autobiography is narrated by the authors. So I listened to Becoming by Michelle Obama and then The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama and then The Last Black Unicorn by Tiffany Haddish. And right now I'm listening to Is Everyone Hanging Out Without Me by Mindy Kaling. And that's really just for fun, just to hear different people's stories and hear them talk about themselves. Cool. And then next up, what is the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you have consumed recently? I just finished a book called Outlaw Ocean by Ian Urbina, who's a reporter for the New York Times. And it was just absolutely incredible. It's about here, I have it right in front of me. I'll read from the jacket. The Outlaw Ocean journeys across the last untamed frontier. And it's about how in the high seas, there's just so much law breaking and so many gray areas and so much tragedy of the commons. And it's all very fucked up. And Ian did this absolutely incredible job where basically for several years he was basically just on boats reporting on sea slavery on cruise ships dumping illegally at sea there's a whole chapter about sealand um that abandoned oil rig that some guy turned into what he calls a nation state so it's just this incredible incredible work of journalism and every chapter is just an incredible story and he did such a good job of weaving it all together and telling every story individually but also showing how they're all linked so i highly recommend it to everyone and it's really inspiring for me too i hadn't really seen reporting done like this where someone just spent several years intensely reporting an issue a huge huge issue i mean it's literally about the ocean the whole ocean so yeah i highly recommend it that sounds amazing. Yeah, I remember when I think it was Associated Press did some piece about ocean slavery. And, you know, it's something you never think about. And, you know, I've always been fascinated by sea voyages. Like I took oceanography in college. That sort of thing is definitely way up my alley. Um, yeah, you should, so definitely, sounds good. you should definitely read it. And according to the statistics that he gives in the books, like anyone who's ever eaten seafood has probably eaten food that's been harvested by slaves, which is insane. And so it touches on everyone, really. Everyone is complicit in this. I guess all the better reason that I've become a vegetarian in the last couple of years. Yeah, I'm vegetarian but, uh, too. Yeah. I'm actually allergic to fish. And that book made me very, very glad to be allergic to fish. <laughs> Okay, cool. And then is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't specifically related to your job? I'm a huge jock. Oh. Uh-huh. I'm, yeah, I love working out. I love sports. I played rugby for Hong Kong for several years. So I, I love reading about exercise science and nutrition and sports. So that's probably my nerd topic. How do you manage your work-life balance, and do you believe in it? I think since becoming a freelancer, I haven't had any work-life balance. But it's manageable because when you're a freelancer, if you're lucky enough to make it work, you get to pick what you can do, and hopefully the projects that you pick are meaningful to you or fulfilling or things that you enjoy. So for me, even though I probably worked more and harder than I did as a full-time employee. And I don't know what weekends mean anymore. (laughs) 
but everything I do is something that I enjoy and everything I do is also really different one from the other so it keeps me interested so no I guess I don't have balance but if you're doing things that you enjoy then it's okay and it's manageable and I always make sure even when things get really bad that I try to balance it out by vegging out for a few days or I always try to make time for exercise and for sleep if possible so it's all about balancing things so that you're able to do them this great leadership coach who does a lot of seminars for National Geographic. Her name is Lisa Witter. And one thing that she always says is protect the asset, the asset being yourself. And that means taking care of yourself, making sure you're sleeping enough and exercising and eating well and everything. And as long as you're protecting the asset, I think anything's really manageable. That's good advice. I did remember one question I forgot to ask back during the biographical section, which was just, I saw that you're a National Geographic Explorer. And what does that mean? Yes. A National Geographic Explorer is just a National Geographic grantee. So I received a grant way back in 2013. It was a Young Explorer grant, and it was for a project I'd started called the Hong Kong Explorers Initiative. And so after I was evacuated from the CAR and I realized that ivory was such a huge problem and that Hong Kong and China were the main sources of demand for that, I realized that there's this problem where people aren't connected to nature. And without that, they don't really think about their impact on nature and they don't really think about protecting it. So I started this really small project. The original idea was actually to crowdsource an online database of Hong Kong species, but that was really, really ambitious and I totally failed. But in the end, it just became this like educational project and I got to speak to a lot of audiences in Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Paris, and Washington, D.C., and also opened a lot of doors in National Geographic. And to this day, I have an ongoing relationship with them where I'm not an employee by any means and actually have not received a grant since. But as an explorer, different opportunities come up with them. And it also means that I'm often at National Geographic headquarters once or twice a year for different conferences and stuff. That's awesome. Wow. Okay, back to the lightning round. So the next question is, is Twitter important to you? Twitter is something I almost entirely use professionally. For me, it's like my journalism platform, and I use it to get news and to put out news. So I wouldn't say it's like important to me personally, but it's certainly useful. And I think during the protests in Hong Kong, it became something I certainly relied on during the protests to figure out what was going on on the ground, thanks to a whole army of journalists, many of whom were independent, who were live tweeting the protests, especially because a lot of time the protests were spread out. Even if you're on the ground, you couldn't necessarily see what was happening elsewhere. So it was very, very useful during the protests. And I think many of us relied on that. Now for me as a freelancer, you know, I think before I build up any sort of audience on Twitter, it's just a sort of frustrating thing where you're kind of speaking out into the void. But thanks to the protests, I was able to build up an audience. And it means I can get the word out to a fairly 
large amount of people very quickly. It also means, especially for me as a freelancer, that I think it just gives me this aura of credibility, even though, of course, like Twitter followers doesn't mean anything whatsoever. But as a freelancer, if an editor is looking at whether to hire me, they'll see that I have some followers and that it must mean I know something. I don't think it actually means that, but I think it gives that aura of credibility. Sure, yeah, that there are already people out there listening to what you have to say. Who, yeah, uh, exactly. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? I would pick a photojournalist like Amy Vitali. Amy Vitali, who I actually know personally, is an incredible photojournalist who started off covering all sorts of news events for the wires she did a lot of conflict but now she's an independent photojournalist who does a lot of especially conservation stories for national Geographic. and i really admire her career because she's been able to do it all and she's at a point in her career where she can also dedicate a lot of her time to issues that she cares about she spends a lot of time in kenya working to raise awareness for this elephant conservation project run by a local community and and that's sort of her big project. So if I could trade places with any journalist, it'd be Amy Vitale because she's able to strike a balance between assignments and personal projects and championing issues that she really cares about. Cool. And is she based in Kenya or where is she based, do you know? She lives in Montana, technically, but I think she's very rarely there. Oh, wow. What do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I think that for some reason, people like talking to me and they'll tell me their whole life story without me saying much. (laughs) And I don't know if it's a skill or whatever, but I'm really grateful that people feel comfortable talking to me. And that's one of the best things about being a journalist, I think, is hearing other people's stories and having the privilege of them opening up their lives to you. Definitely. Yeah, that's very important. And then the next question is, what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I think I would go back and tell myself. And I think this is something I often have to tell young women in general is to just have more confidence in yourself and what you think and what you have to say. I think When you're a young woman, especially, you have a lot of self-doubt and you kind of question if that your opinions must be stupid or that you're not an expert or there's always someone who knows better and therefore what you have to say isn't worthy. But I think young me and young women in general, I wish they knew that what they have to say and what they think are worthy. Yeah, that's very important. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? I guess people who I work with professionally don't usually know that I'm a rugby player, even though having played rugby from a very young age, I think it's been very instrumental in shaping who I am and even who I am as a journalist and as a photojournalist. And do you were a member of the Hong Kong, I don't know if national team's the right way to phrase it, but... That's what they call it, funnily enough. I'm surprised it hasn't been controversial yet. (laughs) 
But so you would compete at what sort of events? So the highlight of my rugby career was definitely playing in the 2017 Rugby World Cup in Ireland. And after that, I basically sort of retired from at least national level rugby. Still, yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, I know rugby is a big thing in Hong Kong. I personally not watch much rugby, but a lot of my friends who live in Hong Kong do. You should. It's fun to watch. I think it's probably one of the sports that are fun to watch even if you don't know much about it. Though the rules are complicated at first. Yeah, I've got to learn it. Uh, a lot of my friends who went to international schools grew up playing rugby, even instead of American football, which uh, yeah, is interesting. Yeah, it's a weird colonial thing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, at least you're not like playing polo on horseback or something like that. It's not that elitist. Yeah. I'm also allergic to horses. That's a fun fact. Oh, huh. I imagine that's pretty easy to avoid at least, though. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Can you eat horses? I guess you're a vegetarian, so it doesn't come up. (laughs) Yeah. So when I have to list it on like, you know, medical forms, because I'm allergic to fish and horses. But when you say it in one phrase, you're like, can you eat one or the other? Can you not eat either? Like, so I can't eat fish and I'm allergic to horse hair. That's what I usually say. (laughs) Gotcha. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV or other media property about journalists? and why so my favorite body of work about journalism is long form because i think it's such a treat to be able to hear directly from journalists and hear about their lives and their process because especially for me as someone who didn't grow up knowing any journalists who never studied journalism formally and who hasn't worked with a lot of journalist colleagues directly i love hearing about how they work and how they became journalists and hearing how everyone sort of has the same self-doubts and went through the same hurdles. I think that's really helpful and really encouraging. And for me, it's like getting a master's in journalism very, very slowly, one podcast episode at a time. So I really, really appreciate that podcast. Cool. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. Qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I think in another life, I would have liked to have been a scientist. And part of me still is open to that idea. I actually got into a PhD program last year and turned it down. But yeah, I think part of me would have loved diving deep into a topic and being in the field and collecting data and finding out new things about the world, however esoteric. That would have been really cool. And it would have been something I would have loved as a kid. And like I said, I'm still not closing the door on, even though I'm probably getting a bit late for that. <laughs> cool. Well, that's all of my questions. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Laurel Chor, a freelance journalist based in Hong Kong. I'll post links to some of Laurel's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. 
Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, June 14th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.